0: Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church Podcast. This is the third in our James series, and it is called Faith is Meant for the Road. We hope you enjoy. Love that song you guys wrote, um, Perfect Lover. Uh, My heart is found, it's perfect lover. Every meal we crave is just a bit of a hint that we were made to crave something more and something better and something bigger. Every desire we have for pleasure is just a point to us a point us to the reality that there is something we were created uh, to take more pleasure in, eternal pleasure in. Our desire for a relationship like a wife or a spouse friendship is just to point us just to echo us back towards Jesus and the one who is supposed to be our, our heart's perfect lover. Even our desire for fame, um, is a, a bit of us being pointed to our desire for ultimate meaning and purpose. Um, I actually had that a lot when I was a kid. Uh, when I was a kid, I oftentimes wanted to do some uh, do some things that would make me famous. Uh, in a, about 11 years old, being caught up into the uh, vanilla ice craze, I uh, like most uh, 11-year-old white boys were, um, I, uh, I uh, started with a friend called Shane, Rick- Shane Rickman, and we started talking about what it would like to be amazing rap artists. So we decided we were going to be are going to be amazing rap artists. So we practiced, we wrote our lyrics, we went through the thing, we, we performed in the mirror, we did all the things we could do, and finally, it was beautiful, Molly, why are you shaking your head? Um, we finally, um, it was about the time to, uh, to share our, our, our hip-hop abilities uh, with the world, but we knew it was appropriate to, um, to maybe get a bit of an audience first, to get some feedback and improve. I mean, we were on our way to stardom, but we were, we were humble about it. Um, so we wanted to hear some feedback. So uh, we got from my mom and dad. Uh, we did our, our rap presentation. Our, so I don't even know how to talk about it. Um, and uh, we we shared our, our beautiful talents uh, before my mom and dad. And after it was over, um, I, I just knew it was an amazing experience. So I asked my dad for some advice. My dad, of course, responded, "Stop collaborating and listen." No, he didn't do that. Um, <laughs> My dad responded, uh, Son, that was, that was interesting, but I don't suggest you take it on the road. <laughs> now, if my grandmother would have heard me, she would have definitely said, Hey, come here. Let, let's, let's make sure everybody in the world gets to hear this ability, right? Because she, when she heard me do anything, anytime we did anything with my grandmother, she always wanted the whole world to hear it. You know, if you sang a song at church on one Sunday, she would want everybody at the family gathering the next Sunday to hear it or the Sunday at dinner. She always wanted us to take our, our shows on the road, if you will. Um, And as we think about that, that's what we say, right? When something's really great or something is really impressive musically or somebody has really talent, we we might say, hey, it's time for you to take that on the road. Um, I want us to look at how we want to take our faith on the road because in the same way that maybe my grandmother thought it would really make an impact and make a difference on people's life if I could share my songs, and my dad didn't think it would make a difference to the world, at least a positive one, if I took uh, my hip-hop abilities on the road as an 11-year-old white boy. Uh, In the same way that that was true, we want to make a difference in the world. Don't you feel the need to make a difference? Don't you have that deep desire inside of you that when when people talk about you, that they say that you've done something meaningful? Uh, I think a lot of us think about it from the uh, maybe a little bit morbid perspective of, hey, when I die, I I hope people miss me. I hope I've made a mark, or if I leave that job, will people talk about the impact I've made on them? We want to make a difference, and our world needs us to make a difference. Um, in the world we live in today, it's important for us to look and see and understand the kind of difference that we have an opportunity to make. Even with that in mind, uh, the some of the statistics that you research sees just how much our world needs us to make a difference. One in ten people in America have been diagnosed with depression, and they guess, and probably it's more like twenty to thirty percent of Americans probably have experienced some sort of depression. Add on top of that the, the epidemic loneliness, suicide rates, addiction that we discover a, and assess in the world as people pursue pursue pleasure out of balance. Um, and we understand that we're in a world that is hurting, that is broken, that is chasing down any anecdote to the suffering they possess and they are in the middle of. Our world needs for us to make a difference. Our world needs for us to take our faith um, on the road, an uh, interesting uh, comment from um, Alan Versch, who wrote uh, the book On the Verge. He said, speaking about our opportunity to engage mission and engage the world in a little different way, he said, what about the, the 60% of people who for various reasons report significant alienation from precisely the contemporary church, church growth models we rely so heavily on? In other words, 60% of people who, have ex- not, who are outside the church... 60% of people who have experienced the mass church movement, the church growth model movement, the big, the big show, if you will, 60% of them speak to their alienation and loneliness, not outside of the church but within it. What will church be for these people? What is good news going to sound like for them? And how are they going to access the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that are culturally meaningful uh, to their lives? So as we look at the book of James today, we're going to be looking at James chapter 2. We want to understand what James means by this idea, and he's going to say it a slightly different way, but that our faith is meant to be taken on the road. So look at James chapter 2 with me. We're going to read verse 14, and we may stop in the middle of this, this text. Um, verse 14, we'll stop, we'll read for a minute, and then we'll move on and make a few comments. Do we have a text up? Were we able to get that? So um, as we're reading here, it just reminds you a little bit of the context of last week. Uh, last week's context, we talked about an introduction to the book of James. And the big idea of the introduction was, was pretty simple. Um, and, it, and it's this idea that, that in James, uh, there is a structure, an idea being put forth that our, our emotions can't truly lead to true ultimate change in Christ, but listening to the Spirit can. And if we listen to the Spirit through the Word of God, our hearts will be changed and we will live out our faith and service and love to those who need, need service and love the most. We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's go ahead and read James chapter 2, verse 14. When good, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes or lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does, doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Verse 20, foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? A little different word there than dead. Verse 21, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was acted together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So, as we read through that passage of Scripture, if you're paying attention, that may surprise you. If you've been around church for a while and you've read the Bible for a while, um, that passage uh, is a pretty well-known passage. And the reason it's so well-known is because on the surface level, it would appear to teach the opposite of what most of the New Testament teaches. As a matter of fact, if you read Romans chapter 4, and I would encourage you to do that at some point today, uh, if you take notes, I'd even put that in in my notes. Hey, read Romans 4 today. If you read Romans 4, the first six or seven verses of it, Paul, in articulating the gospel, and and to me one of the most clear articulations of the gospel in the entire New Testament, almost uses the exact opposite, on the surface level, the opposite words that James uses here in James chapter 2. So this passage could mean several different things. But it's tough for us to figure out what it means sometimes because it sounds like the opposite of what we typically hear in the church and what we typically hear really throughout the New Testament. And that is, is that we become believers. We are forgiven of our sins. Because of our faith in the the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he gives us that forgiveness. He gives us the justification, our salvation as a free gift of grace. And our responsibility is not to work for it, not to do good things for it, but just to receive that as a gift of faith. That's what James chapter, I mean, Romans chapter 4 clearly articulates. And most of the New Testament, all of the New Testament, really speaks to that very, very clearly over and over and over. If you've been at Restoration Church a lot, you know that we say that, say that, say that, over, say that over. The gospel is central to not only what we do at Restoration Church, it is central. It is an anchor, a seed of everything that we think, everything that we believe, and everything that we do. So, what in the world is James chapter 2 talking about when it says, that faith without works is dead. That a man can't be justified by faith alone, but he needs to be justified by faith and works. What's going on there? Well, it could be one of a few things. One thing that a lot of people will use in this passage, and they'll interpret it slightly different uh, than probably a lot of us in this room would, is that on the surface level, and by the way, on the, just a cursory reading, this is probably what's implied by it, um, that in order to be a, become a Christian, in order to have your sins forgiven, you need to have faith in Jesus and you need to do good works. That faith by itself won't save you. A lot of people would believe that. A lot of people out there would believe that in order to be a good Christian, yeah, you need to believe the right things about the Bible. You need to trust in Jesus. But also, if that's where it stops, you're not, you're not going to become a Christian. You're not a Christian until you add to your faith good works. Another way to look at it, and the way a lot of people often look at it, is uh, that this is a passage to teach us what real faith looks like. That if your faith is authentic in Jesus, you really had faith in Jesus and when you became a Christian, then it will produce good works. That's what I heard most of my life growing up. Um, the problem, I think there's a lot of problems with that, but I will go ahead and, and, and speak to uh, the fact that I want us to look at a third way, a third potential way that I think is most relevant to the text that isn't necessarily representative of either, either of those two, and it's more in line with the rest of the New Testament. But for us to uncover that third way, I want to get into the context of James chapter 2 to remind us what we said. So the first thing is, is look in James chapter 1 at the very end there, and it's what we talked about last week, uh, but I want to point it out again, just so that we don't miss it. Um... And it's in verse 22. It says, But be doers of the word or practisers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then if you skip down to verse 26, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue but but deceiving his heart, his religion is useless. Verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, To look after orphans and widows in their distresses and to keep oneself unstrained by the world. So what this passage does for us is gives us the context for James chapter 2. It tells us what works means. So as we start trying to understand what faith plus works really is all about, we need to understand what works means in the context of James chapter 2. Works isn't just in the in the book of James chapter 2. I'm not saying it's not this partially, but it's not just stop doing bad stuff. Now most of the time when we look at James chapter 2 as Christians, when we look at this passage as part of the Bible, we oftentimes look at it as uh, this is a passage that tells us to stop doing bad stuff. So if somebody um, says too many bad words or if they tell too many bad jokes or, they, or, or they're not a good person or they lie too much, they probably don't have real faith. Well James is saying that works is something different than that. Works isn't stop doing bad stuff and it's not even specifically start doing right stuff. It's, do, it's start doing the right, right stuff if that makes sense. So if you've been around church for a while, you may have heard this idea. There's sins of omission and sins of commission, right? So sins of commission or commission, to make it rhyme, um, are sins that we do that we choose to do wrong. It's me actively doing something against the will of God. God says, thou shalt not steal, and I steal. God says, don't bear false witness, and I bear false witness. A lot of times we look at this passage of Scripture and we think it's talking about sins of commission, things that we do that are wrong. The emphasis, though, according to this context, isn't the things that we do that are wrong, but the things that we fail to do that are right, and the right things that we fail to do that are right. The, the focus of this passage isn't just any works, any good things. It is the focus of serving and living in relationship, if you remember last week, not just, not just projects with people who are on the outside of the margins of life, those who are suffering, represented by orphans and, and, and widows in this passage, but how do we engage in mission, serving, living life with, living in relationship with those who are the most ostracized in our society and the most needy in our society? James is saying that faith plus those kinds of works are what count. So that's important to keep in context. Now we're not going to read this whole text, but if you look at chapter chapter 2 verse 1 through verse 13, I do want you to look at just the first, the first verse because this command is the the command that wraps up all of chapter 2. It says, my brothers, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without partiality or without showing favoritism. And it then goes about to give us an illustration of what it means. Here's the basic illustration. If you have somebody who is rich that comes into your your church. Now imagine imagine right now um, if a very famous person, maybe it's Barack Obama, maybe it's um, a famous actor, maybe it's Mel Gibson, uh, maybe it's uh, Taylor Swift, or, or maybe in the Christian world it would be somebody more like uh, Billy Graham came into the room right now. How would, how would we treat that person? Well, the Bible says, and, and the, the challenge that James gives us is we have a tendency to treat people of esteem and highly talented people in a very special way. And it gives us the example of how we might be tempted to, when that person comes to the door, has wealth, has something to give us. It's key. When somebody comes to the door, has something to give us. We treat them in an elevated, esteemed way so we make sure they have the front seat and they're treated very well. Oh, did you get a coffee? Oh, did you get a bottle of water? Oh, let me make sure that you, make sure that, um, uh, Todd, would you mind rubbing their feet while you're over here? <laughs> and then when somebody comes in who has nothing to offer us, how do we treat them? And James is saying oftentimes in the Christian context, we treat the person who has something to give us better than the person who has nothing to give us. And he says it should actually be reversed. That's the picture, the definition he give, begins to give us as we want to understand, as we seek to understand what does it mean when James says works. But let's keep going. And you notice I have some words underlined up here uh, uh, in the text. So in the, the text that's going to be up on the slide there is uh, the whole thing. It's kind of small, and I'm sorry for it. But the have, first word we have there is good, and it's the word useless. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 and 2 Corinthians uh, where he says all things are permissible for me, but not all things are profitable for me. Meaning there's nothing, no, I'm no longer under the law, so there's no, no longer any specific rules that, guide, uh, that, that dominate or demand for me certain things with, so that I can receive grace. Grace is freely given to me, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are useful for me. So James isn't speaking about just randomness here. He's talking about how we can become useful, profitable in our faith. Not to ourselves, but to others. And then as we keep reading, he goes on to say, go in peace. So he gives this this amazing, amazing illustration. Someone says he has faith, but does does not have works. Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them anything, you don't give them what the body needs, what in the world is that for? How profitable, how useful is that? Now none, none of us, we probably read this and we think that's absurd, right? Somebody comes in and says, hey, guys, we haven't had food for like three or four days. We're really hungry. Is there any way you could spare, you know, spare a couple dollars, maybe help go to the grocery store, Cakes Grocery Store? Dearly beloved brother, be fed. Like, nobody's going to do that. Like, can, can you imagine somebody doing that? If I tell you what it does look like in the Christian life, hey, man, we're really struggling right now. Well, I'll pray for you. Now, prayer is powerful. Prayer changes things. But James is challenging us to think deeper than our words and even our prayers. Sometimes it will say, sometimes we might come to a brother in a death group or a sister in a death group and say, Amen, I'm really struggling with lust. Well, stop it. (laughs) Oh, thanks. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. James is challenging us to go beyond our words Go beyond our theology, go beyond our, our sermons and our messages and move into the area of service and action. Make our faith useful, actually provide something beyond just a statement. In the same way, and then the next phrase it says is in the same way, in other words, this is an illustration for us to help us understand what it means by faith is without works is dead. So in the same way that it would be ludicrous and useless and, and not, not profitable to anyone, if somebody came in here asking for food or asking for money or asking for help and we just spoke to them words and didn't actually help them, in the same way that that would be useless, faith without works is dead. So not just in any way, not in any way that we want to come up with, not even in a... Uh, forgive the theological language your salvific way a way that is re- relative to our, our, whether we we're saved or lost not in that kind of way but in a way as, is it useful does it help anyone does our faith mean anything to anyone does it have impact in the same way faith if it doesn't have works is dead being by itself by someone but someone will say you have faith and I have works show me your faith without works and I will show you that's underlined for reason. I will show you faith from my works. How can you see my faith? You cannot see my faith. I could be the most faith-expressing human being alive in my heart right now, and you wouldn't know it. I could also be the least faith-expressive human being alive, and you wouldn't know it. But what you can see is how I serve you. My faith is from my relationship with God. My relationship with you is dependent upon how I express that faith in service and kindness. I will show you my faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is, and we'd almost expect the word dead again, wouldn't we? Like that's what he said like two or three times already. We almost expect him to say dead again. Faith without works is, he helps us understand what he means by dead, useless. It's a different word that's what's used in good, but it's, it's the opposite idea. It's the opposite of valuable. Your faith doesn't do any, provide any value to anyone. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works. And by works faith was perfected. I love that that, that idea of you see that faith was active together. It, it came together with works and actually accomplished something. And then he says, and by works faith was perfected. Uh, I don't have it up on the screen, but turn over to James chapter 1 verse 3 real quick. It's what uh, what Will taught us a couple Sundays ago. And it gets to the big ideas of James. It's always important when you're studying and reading the Bible to understand the big ideas so that you can put things in the proper context. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work or its perfect work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's the same word that James uses in chapter 2 for perfect. In other words, James is saying this. He's saying for you to become a mature believer, not to be a believer at all, but a mature believer, someone who's growing in Christ, growing in their faith in the gospel, allowing the Spirit of God to transform them as they listen to the Holy Spirit speaking in their heart through interpreting and reading and studying the Word of God. As you do so, as your faith matures and is perfected, you won't just stop at the good words or the good belief or the good theology. You will express your faith not just in any works. Again, it's so important. Not just in any works, but in works of service and love and mission to the least among us in the world and in the nations. i will keep reading. So the scripture was filled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route. Again, a, a very specific illustration to help us see what the actual work produced. And then this is a key to me to understand this text. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So, according to the anthropology of James, the, the way, how is a man made up in James? He's spirit and body. Now, if all I was was spirit, you wouldn't know I was here, would you? Kind of Creepy. <laughs> if I was a spirit, you wouldn't know I was here. It's my body that you know. You know my facial expression. You know my voice uh, that couldn't exist without my body. Uh, you you know you know things about me based on your encounter with my with my ability to produce um, physical physical things in my body. You know what my face looks like, etc. James is saying gives us an illustration at the end, so we make sure we don't misunderstand what this text is about. Now. Is the real me my body or my spirit? I would say it's my spirit. I would agree with that. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> I thought they said the real me is my spirit. And I'd say that theologically or in the Bible, the reason why we would believe that is because my spirit goes on to live for eternity, with, with or without my body. My body will be transformed and brought with my spirit, which probably shouldn't get into those kind of things in this, this text. But, but my body, my spirit is the real me. Whether my body is living or not, do I exist? I exist. somebody came in here and they chopped me down, I would still exist. My my spirit would be, be be an entity that was real. My body, I'm sorry, my spirit is real with or without my body. But can I, depending on which TV shows you watch, you may not be able to answer this question really well. But can I, without my body, do you any good? James is saying the same thing about your faith and your works. Without works, my faith won't do you any good. Without works, your faith will not do this world any good. So I want to summarize it. kind of get to what James is saying and make some application points. So the summary is this. James is saying this, we mature in our faith. So we listen to the Spirit of God as we Uh, do so in the context of scripture he begins to transform our hearts we will serve out we will work out the salvation that God has worked into us and the relation that is with faith is the more I believe the gospel the more I understand the gospel the more I dive deeper into the gospel and how it affects not only my eternity but my thinking my worldview my decisions my marriage my parenting the more mature I get in in the gospel the more I grow in grace The result of that disciple-making, growing closer to Jesus process will be, not not that I do just any works, though that's obviously a part of it, but that I will begin to serve and live on mission and impact other people. And not just any people, those who need to be impacted the most. Not just anyone, those who can't give us anything. That's the outworking of a mature believer. It's not how theologically accurate we are. It's not how well we know our Bible. It's not how many Christian songs we can memorize or how many Christian t-shirts we have or what radio station we listen to or what rated movies we go to. The outworking maturity of a believer is what are you doing to serve those who need to be served the most? James is saying that faith is meant for the road. I like how Martin Luther says it. It will be on the screen for you. God does not need your good works but your neighbor does. So I want to make a few application points. A couple of different things. So faith is meant for the road. Just a couple application points. Having to give is never a gift. So one reason I want to be really careful and interpret this passage of Scripture to the least the best of my abilities is because I want to make sure that nobody walks around here feeling like I used to feel when I heard preachers preach this. A lot of times I used to feel like this was used as a... a um, a sledgehammer to beat me over the head to tell me if I wasn't perfect, basically, I wasn't really a Christian. This passage has nothing to do with whether you're a Christian or not. And I would challenge you to never base your assurance, the assurance of whether you're a Christian or not, never base your assurance on your works. Base your assurance on the work of Jesus only. Because it's the only thing that will never change. And if your assurance is based on your works... You will never have assurance because you can't guarantee your assurance won't change in the future. Which is a direct contrast to 1 John that says we can know we're saved. If you can know you're saved, then your salvation has to be built on a former past event. Because you can't predict future events. Does that make sense? Your assurance should be built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality that he took away your sins. He is the one who provides for you the gift of salvation and our response to that is faith. So ask yourself ask yourself if you are living in faith in the gospel. Then in that context the next challenge is, is as we understand the gospel and believe it and trust in the gospel regularly even though our assurances are based on it our hearts begin to be changed and transformed so that we live out what God has worked in. That is the beauty of James chapter 2, coming to life. And that puts us in a unique position to give and serve others. So ladies, we've got a question for you. And you can either raise your hand, grunt, nod, whatever you want to do. Um, Valentine's Day, around 3 o'clock, your husband shows up with the roses. Does that mean a lot to you? Yes. Yes. I would have have thought that would have been the answer pretty, pretty well. Newlyweds are the loudest. Just throwing that out here. (laughs) Would it mean more? on a random Tuesday, maybe in the middle of June, around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, your husband comes around and brings you a dozen roses just because he was thinking about you. The gospel frees us to serve and give in the beauty of an unforced, gracious, merciful spirit of giving. I don't give because I have to. I don't give because God's going to send me to hell if I don't. I don't give to prove to you that I'm a real Christian or to make sure my faith is authentic. My faith was settled when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. I give to you because God loved me so much that I want to give that love to you. And it is free and untethered the same way he freely gives to me. There's a story, um, and just so I do it right, I'm going to read it. Years ago, this is from uh, Tim Keller. Years ago, I heard one unforgettable example of a Christian who showed this kind of integrity and compassion. Not long after the kind of integrity and compassion we might expect in the gospel, not long after we began our new church in New York City, I saw a young woman who was obviously visiting and darting out after each service. One week, I intercepted her. She told me she was exploring Christianity. She didn't believe it at that point, but she found a lot of it very interesting. Hopefully, that's the kind of church we are where people feel like they can come and explore but why would they? I asked her how she had found Redeemer, and she told me this story. She worked for a company in Manhattan, and not long after starting there, she made a big mistake that she thought would cost her her job. But her boss went in and took uh, went into a superior and took complete responsibility for what she had done. As a result, he lost some of his reputation and ability to maneuver within the organization. She was amazed at what he had done and went into thinking. She told him that she had often seen supervisors take credit for what she accomplished. You seen that? Yeah, me too. But she had never seen the supervisor take the blame for something she had done wrong. She wanted to know what made a difference. He was very modest and deflected her questions, but she insisted. Finally, he told her, I am a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ is to blame for things I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. That is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She stared at him for a long moment and asked, where do you go to church? He suggested she go to Redeemer, and so she did. His character had been shaped by his experience of grace in the gospel, and he lived his purpose out in his service to others. We are the place because of the gospel to give freely. Let's give freely. The second thing is is that maturity leads to mission. Maturity means mission. But within that context, there are two places that that comes out and comes to life. I think there's one place is in our relationships. Our relationships have to lead to mission and service of one another. Reminds me of the song uh, from a great American poet, Willie Nelson. Actually, one of my favorites. Anybody else a Willie Nelson fan out there? All right, there we go. Um, I do believe this was probably written in a bit of an, an irony. Maybe I didn't love you quite often as I could have. And maybe I didn't treat you quite as good as I should have. If I made you feel second best, girl, I'm sorry I was blind. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. And maybe I didn't hold you all those lonely, lonely times. And I guess I never told you I'm happy that you're mine. Little things I should have said and done, I just never took the time. But you were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. Tell me, tell me that your sweet love hasn't died. And give me, give me one more chance to keep you satisfied I'll keep you satisfied. Little things I should have said and done. I just never took the time. But you were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. I think this is a bit of confession from Willie Nelson of the need for James 2 in our relationships. To move from the mind and even the words into service and love in action. The second place that we see this come to life is in the church. The church being on mission we at Restoration Church do not have any desire to simply have believers swap from our church, from some other church to our church just because we have a better show yet to be honest right now we are looking for other people who want to help us with our mission but ultimately our heart's desire is to live out the mission of Jesus in the city streets and connect and serve and share and show the gospel to those in poverty to those in struggling, those who are hurting whether they're wealthy or poor and see people who had never set foot into the best church in the city of Durham. Engage them in serving, loving relationship. Show them the gospel. Share them the gospel. And bring them into a family and bring them into relationship. And maybe one day into a church service. But it's the last thing, not the first thing. We want to live on mission. I love what Ralph Winter, one of the most effective and impactful missiologists of the last century said this. He said, evangelism is a church growing where it is. Missions is a church growing where it isn't. We at Restoration Church want to take our faith on the road. We want to take it into the city. We want to take it into streets. We want to take it into the neighborhoods. There's a, a story of the Zenith Drilling Company. And they had prided themselves for being the uh, best drilling bit, drill bit company in the world. But then they started to slip a little bit. And so they hired a new uh, CEO. And the CEO gathered all the leaders together to talk about what their mission was. They worked and they collaborated and they debated. And after much conversation and deliberation, they decided their mission was not only to make drill bits, but also to make the best drill bits in the world. They all agreed this was a great, excellent purpose. But the CEO stopped them and he said, nope. Your job is not to make the best real bits in the world. Rather, it is to make the best holes in the world. They went on to innovate laser drilling and become the best hole-making company in the world. Our job is not to grow a church. It's to make disciples their relationships in the city. That's what James 2 is challenging us to do because faith is meant to be taken on the road. Let's pray.